been a little more than a year since the first COVID-19 patient in the U.S. was admitted to the Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett, Washington. Today, everyone is focused on vaccines. A year ago, it was ventilators. Silic Shane is design and construction manager for Providence St. Joseph Health in Washington. Last spring, using off-the-shelf parts, Silex and some other engineers built a prototype emergency ventilator that could be readily deployed during a pandemic. But you can see this guy going. How quick that deflates now? That's what we were looking for. Return to zero atmosphere at the end of the exhale. No uh, carbon dioxide left in the lungs before the next inhale begins. That's Silex Shane demonstrating an emergency ventilator that he designed. Silex joins us now from Spokane. Hey, Silex, welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to join you. So you saw a need. How did you know that you could help? Uh, well, we were watching the news closely um, and had seen what was going on in Europe and Italy in particular. Uh, and our team here, uh, luckily with our vice president for uh, real estate strategy and operations, he had reached out to everyone collectively uh, and asked us for anything that we knew of coming down the pipeline that we needed to brace for. And ventilator shortage was one of those items that we had been seeing uh, Italy raise their hands on. Uh, and so I had suggested that to, um, to the vice president and uh, he had said that that was a valid um, concern and that we didn't have uh, a very large contingency or stockpile readily available. Um, we had gathered uh, local resources and experts who have worked in microcontrollers and processors like the Arduino system and the 3D printing and asked them if they'd be willing to participate. Have you ever built anything like this before? Not specifically, and uh, I, I hope I never have to again as well. It, it was a, a great you know, monumental effort, and uh, we had great results, but at the same time, the, the reason behind it is, is a little sad. Um, and so... Uh, we hope we wouldn't have to, and um, but yeah, we haven't built anything like that before. I've done a lot of other things, but but not that. I love that the video shows you building this in your garage. Yeah, we were working on the project uh, remotely because of the the COVID and the social distancing requirements, and so um, everyone was remote. And so I had uh, one of the engineers who's helped me actually works at uh, the uh, JPL, and another one um, helped out, and he works for. Uh, General Atomics and those groups, and so I've had some very, very um, detail-oriented and, and qualified mechanical engineers watching me adjust the device in front of them and then making suggestions for improvement. And so I would implement the instructions that they were giving me and, and test it and then run it through the uh, patient simulator and, and see the results and get their feedback and continually improve it. So that's why we ended up with five different versions. That's great. In the end, what was the cost for the fifth iteration of the device? I do believe it was about $250 worth of parts, the most expensive piece being the timer and the valves. The rest of the parts actually all came from um, Lowe's, Home Depot, Ace, those types of stores. Uh, and so we were able to, because uh, I assembled it by myself without any team there, I was able to assemble it um, within half an hour. It's truly remarkable. Has it been employed anywhere? Um, I did do an instructional video um, from beginning to end, every single part and how they go together and, and what you need to look out for. Um, and I, we did distribute that to a group, I believe South Africa had requested it and I had another group um, that had requested it too. Uh, I think uh, my friend in Denmark had asked for a copy. Well, Silex, it's really remarkable and I just want to thank you for sharing your talent and the work you do day to day, but this project seems 
especially beautiful in a lot of ways. And I, I just want to thank you. Well, I, I appreciate it. I'm not one for compliments often. It's more of a, I feel like I was doing the right thing at the right time with the right people. And, and so that's why the results were positive. Is um, We have some rural hospitals that Providence serves here in Chihuahua, Colville, and uh, other areas like that that wouldn't have access to a ventilator if they had a surgeon patients. And so we wanted to be able to allow them to configure one rapidly using parts that they could get locally if they really, really had to. Well, that's fantastic. Please stay safe, okay? Thank you. Thanks for your help and thanks for your time. Silic Shane is a design and construction manager for Providence St. Joseph Health in Spokane, Washington. We put a link to his video where he explains his rapid deploy ventilator on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. From the Providence Institute for Human Caring, this is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. On today's program, behind the scenes of a pandemic, we'll meet some of the people who have kept hospitals and care teams working during a year of extraordinary and unprecedented stress. Singing the praises of the unsung heroes today on Hear Me Now. Stay with us. Careful listeners to this podcast will recognize the name Heather Martin. I mention her and other medical librarians at the end of every episode because, truth be told, we couldn't produce this program without them. Heather is the Director of System Library Services for Providence, and she joins me now from Astoria, Oregon. Hi, Heather. How are you? Hello. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely true that the work of the medical librarians has been essential to producing this podcast. Thank you. It's been it's been a really exciting partnership to to get to do all this work with you guys this year. The thing I love about the job the most, in addition to you know that that we really are helping to support um, and care for the poor and vulnerable, is that I am constantly learning. So whether that's learning about librarianship and how to be a better librarian or a better leader of librarians, I'm also learning um, about the things we're researching. It's one of the the parts that's been really great working um, with you guys and you know you throw that research topic on me and then it's like being a detective so it really keeps the job um, fun and, and keeps you always on your toes. That's cool. This year the epidemiological portrait of the pandemic has changed over the course of the year. Um, how much of your work has been tracking what we know about the virus and and how to treat patients who are infected with it? Um, so within our team, and so I lead a team of um, myself plus 14 other library staff spread across the Providence footprint. For me personally, my work is, I want to say 75% just reading about COVID. So one of the things, the ways the library stepped up and is trying to help our caregivers and physicians sort of manage this infodemic, you know, there's so much research coming out all the time. We're seeing about, and I'm, I'm, don't quote me on these numbers, but it's around 1,200, maybe 1,500 new articles every week. That's incredible. What I do every morning is I start with those new articles, identify the ones that are going to be really key, that are sort of the, the newest research, or uh, maybe the ones getting a lot of media, and we're putting together what we call our COVID uh, 
resource desk. So um, we do that, publish that weekly, and it sort of brings down that 1,500 articles to about 50 articles, let's say, that we publish to um, sort of give all our our clinicians and researchers kind of a more digestible piece of, of the new evidence coming out. So in addition to that, um, which is how I start my day, um, I am doing a lot of the, the literature searches for um, sort of our system folks. So whether that's infection prevention um, or nursing, you know, when they're, they're trying to identify those system policies or procedure or, or guidelines around COVID. So doing that work. So I feel like I'm kind of living and breathing <laughs> the COVID research all day, every day. Heather, did anything prepare you for this? Or did you just have to sort of learn as you were going along? You know, I, th- there's definitely been a lot of learning as we go along. But I do think that there, that there are aspects of the profession that did prepare Paris for this. Um, one of them being that librarians, although you may think of us as, you know, just being those shushers um, with a bunch of books in the library, we really... Don't forget the snood. <laughs> yeah. We really often are um, sort of on the technology forefront. So we had done a lot of things um, within system library services in our attempts to uh, make sure that we had equal access to our resources for folks all across the enterprise and, you know, our home services folks who may be working, you know, out in the field, that they had remote access to our our journals and our eBooks, as well as being that we're a team that works all across the system. We had already developed a lot of ways to um, internally within our department work remotely. And so I think that set us up really well to this new landscape where everybody's working from home. Mm. And really what librarians' jobs are is to help people manage information um, and manage the glut of information out there. It's just become a little more obvious in this particular topic how huge that information overload is and how challenging it can be. I know that a lot of our clinicians, can they can do their own research. You know, they can find articles and, and find evidence, but... Um, but I always think about how, you know, we're doing it every day so we can do it faster. That's just a fact. And I'd much rather that my doctor was spending time reading the article and and figuring out how to apply it rather than spending all his time or her time, um, you know, in the, the database when they have librarians there to do that. That's such a good point. You, you mentioned that you're all working remotely, and I'm curious from a managerial point of view, how are, how are you keeping an eye on your colleagues? How are you looking out for one another? You know, most of, most of our team has worked, um, well, everybody, you know, works at a, at a hospital um, pre-pandemic. Um, often they were, the in some cases, the only librarian or, or one of two library staff at that site. So we were all very used to working with each other from afar. Um, I have to say there's still one, I believe one member of my staff I haven't met in person yet. Um, but so we, we have a lot of those tools, a lot of check-ins um, that we do, whether it's on the phone or using instant message. Um, one thing that I really love doing with my team um, that I have to give credit to my predecessor on um, is that we do a getting to know you question at the beginning. I think when you don't work at the beginning of our meetings, when you don't work together in person, um, sometimes your only interactions might end up being work-related and it's hard to sort of know your colleagues as a whole person if Mm -hmm. all you ever do is talk about work. So those are often, you know, 
just silly little questions around like, what was the best Halloween costume you ever wore? Or, um, you know, your favorite winter memory or something like that, that just forces us to, um, to talk about things that aren't work related and get to know each other as people. So I think that's really helped us build a really strong, um, a strong team who I don't think was, um, you know, shaken at all by, by having to now work from, from their, their bedrooms or their home office. That's kind of brilliant team building technique. All of us at the podcast are really thankful for the, the work that you've all done. Amazed by it, frankly, and, <laughs> and deeply grateful. Happy to help. Please pass our thanks on to your colleagues, would you? I will do. I, in fact, I'm probably going to make them listen to this podcast so they can hear <laughs> it directly from you. Heather Martin directs System Library Services for Providence St. Joseph Health. We reached her in Astoria, Oregon. Heather, thanks. One last question. Sure. What was your favorite Halloween costume? So I was very much into horror movies uh, when I was younger, and I had a great one based on Dario Argento's Suspiria, but it's a little too scary to share for this audience. So. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Heather, thanks again. Thank you. Donnell Grayer is a sous chef at Marionwood, a skilled nursing facility in Issaquah, Washington, and he joins me now. Hey, Chef, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You know, we've been talking to people today about the pandemic, and, you know, people have to eat. So I'm sure you've been going right. to work just like always. Yeah, essential worker. So what's it been like? How has the, the mood of the place been? You know, with all this going on, it's still been kind of good spirits, but, you know, there's been a lot of little stress going on. You just got to keep going. And it's hard, you know, when you hear about the nursing homes and skilled facilities having so many cases of the COVID-19 and people are saying, like, man, I couldn't work in their places, you know, I quit and all this. I felt like I was more protected there because we took the measures to make sure that everyone was safe. Yeah. How has Marionwood fared? Have you had a lot of outbreak? The facility that first hit in, in Washington State, we was only like 20, 30 minutes away from that place. So we had just implemented a, a few things before that happened because we had heard that it was coming from China. So we limited the uh, patients to see the, the uh, patients, only one. And then as it hit, then we went from one to zero. They couldn't come in and see. Then we changed the protocol, the temperature checks, everyone coming in. And so we started pretty early. Uh, we was on top of every kind of early, and I thank my facility for that. Uh, they, they was on top of their game right away. Donnell, tell me about your colleagues. How has the interaction with folks in the kitchen been, but also with the rest of the staff in the facility? Are you all looking out for one another in a particular way? Yes, yes, for sure. Like. You have to take your temperature check and you have to get a screen pass on your shirt. You must wear that. So it's like throughout the building, if anyone sees someone without that on, we need to ask questions. Where's your screen? You know, uh, we want to make sure that we don't have an outbreak. So we want to make sure you, you check in and whatever. And it's throughout the building. You know, everybody's, you know, courteous. They see somebody with not their PPE not on, they'll tell them they need to go get the right PPE. You know, and it's just, it's just carry over through the facility, which, 
which you know it's rare in some places that you you can't you know it's, it's a lot of drama going on within but i think since this COVID 19 has made a lot of people even closer because you know like i say, there's a lot of people dying from this and uh this yeah. is not a joke yeah no it's not a joke well chef i've got to ask you what's your favorite thing to cook my favorite thing to cook i like pastas and stuff uh primaveras and stuff like that that's my main thing i, I like working with sauces yeah, well, with spring right around the corner, pasta primavera sounds pretty darn good. Donnell Grayer is sous chef at the Providence Marionwood Care Facility in Issaquah, Washington. Chef, thanks for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. Thank you. On today's program, we're talking with some of the essential workers behind the scenes who've kept our hospitals and care facilities open during the pandemic. Still to come, we'll talk to a home health aide whose job takes her into the homes of patients, even during a pandemic. And we'll hear from a hospice volunteer who longs for the day when she can once again sit at the end of a patient's bed and listen to their stories. Donnell just mentioned PPE and the importance of that equipment, but how does this critical resource get where it needs to be? Eric Teeter is Materials Management Supervisor for Home and Community Care for Providence St. Joseph Health. He's in Seattle, and he joins me now. Eric, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Let's start by talking a little bit about the scope of home and community care. It, it has a huge footprint from, from Alaska to Texas, and it includes home health and hospice, and infusion and pharmacy, and PACE programs, that's the all-inclusive care for the elderly, plus skilled nursing and assisted living. That, that's a huge variety of care models and a huge number of caregivers and people being cared for. Yeah, it's uh, it can look pretty daunting when we uh, put it all out there as, you know, one giant group. Um, I always view us as our our non-acute outside of the hospital wing of Providence St. Joseph Health. And it's well over uh, several thousand caregivers. Um, I think we looked at 40,000 total potential patients at one point. Um, it's, it's important work. Within supply chain, we have a motto that says, uh, we fill the hands that heal. And uh, we really try to live by that motto. It's our job to make sure that no matter where a nurse, social worker, chaplain, uh, CNA, hospice aide, any of these folks are, they will always have what they need to do their jobs. You know, we've been checking in with people today because it's been a year since the first COVID positive patient in the U.S. was admitted to the Providence Hospital in Everett. And during that year, you've had an increase in responsibilities, as I understand it, including getting personal protective equipment to the frontline people who have really needed it. Can you talk about that and the effect that the pandemic has had on that particular aspect of your work? It's become pretty much all-consuming, to be honest. Uh, With the pandemic, it became very clear that our primary vendors and other manufacturers of PPE out there, uh, they did not have the supply to meet everyone's needs. Um, 
and they did put most of us on um, allocations based off of our historical usage, mm-hmm. um, based off of that fourth quarter of 2019. Now, a lot of my home health hospice and uh, elder place and PACE facilities, um, our use of personal protective equipment was very light. It was one of those things that we had. We could use it when we needed it. But most of the time, our visits didn't call for full PPE, certainly not N95 masks at the levels that we are currently using. Um, With that announcement of those allocations, it became very clear that we needed to partner with our uh, acute side of the health system, our hospital, to help us get supplies for our Mm. in-home care because we just didn't have the allocation because we never used these things to the extent that we're looking at. And, you know, when your usage in the hospitals is up by, you know, 5,000%, you know, we start looking at how do we get this and this is where you know i really am thankful that uh, the providence supply chain and uh, resource engineering and hospitality group uh, they they reached out and started working with us and we've uh, worked really well together to make sure that everybody is getting the supplies that they need and We've had some rough goes where supply was not readily available in a local market. For example, down in Mount Angel, Oregon, we have one of our SNFs uh, that's the Benedictine uh, Nursing Center down there. And they were running short on gowns and other items that they needed to take care of their COVID patients. And the local hospital in Portland didn't have enough supply to send. So we were getting ready to rent a truck, go over to Swedish Cherry Hill and uh, get some supplies from them that they had offered. And we were just going to start driving it down. You know, Um, Eric, I think we're all sort of used to thinking about people going the extra mile in clinical settings to take care of patients on the front line. But I, I have to tell you, it's pretty impressive to hear that a supervisor was prepared to get in a truck and drive gowns to the neighboring state when they were needed. That says a lot about you. Well, uh, I always joke that Providence, uh, we have a clause in our contract that says other duties as assigned. (laughs) I'll say this. I take it very seriously when it comes to my caregivers, no matter what environment that they're in, I want them to be safe. I'm good friends with a lot of our nurses and chaplains and social workers and hospice aides and um, billing personnel. I've been with Providence for 17 years. So when we run into a situation where, you know, I'm worried about these people being safe, it's it's not just, you know, a nameless person. Yeah. These are my coworkers, my friends, my work family, the people that, you know, I see on a daily basis or I will have calls with on a daily basis. And I want to make sure that they're all safe. Well, Eric, it's really impressive and um, a blessing, I think, probably to you and to your colleagues. Thanks for the work that you do. And would you please pass on our thanks to the staff that you work with? I most definitely will. Eric Teeter is the materials management supervisor for home and community care at Providence St. Joseph Health. Eric, thanks for talking to us. Very welcome. I got a call from volunteer services through hospice saying that we could no longer visit with our patients. Patty Pomey is a patient care volunteer 
with the Hospice of Petaluma in Northern California. And so what I decided to do was to call them and I also decided to send cards to them. I would either make the cards out of my rubber stamps or buy them. Sometimes I would add a flower or a picture of my new puppy or something to, um, you know, to give them something to look at. When we could visit uh, with them, um, both of the ladies liked me to sit on the bed, and so I would share with them stories of our ranch, or my puppy, or my cat, or uh, we have one goat on the ranch, and so I would talk about them. The, the one lady loved dogs, and so our conversations uh, focused around her love of dogs. They definitely miss their families. And the last time I talked, um, one of them said to me, I really want you to come and visit. And uh, it, made, it made me sad. And I just keep encouraging them that, you know, this will be over soon and uh, I will be able to come back in person and talk to them. Betty Pomey is a hospice volunteer in Petaluma, California. We're always interested in hearing from you. Our email address is humancaring@providence.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. It's a great way to find out what's coming up on the next podcast, and also to stay connected with the activities of the Institute for Human Caring. Dave Baker is the Information Service and User Support Supervisor at the Providence St. Mary Medical Center in Apple Valley, California. And he joins me now. Dave, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So what has your life been like since COVID? What's the last year been like? It's been chaotic like it has for everyone else. You know, you have to be careful when you go home, mm -hmm. you don't want to be the person who drags something like this into your community. And, you know, working at the hospital, you do have a higher exposure rate than, than the average person. Like most people probably, I've only seen my grandkids once this year. That's stressful. But the flip side of that coin is I'm so thankful to be able to go to work each day and to not have to worry about how I'll pay the bills. Uh, that's a real blessing. And then so many people... Uh, have those other problems. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about your work. Do you supervise folks who are providing support to staff using computer platforms as part of their caregiving? Am, am I in the right ballpark? Yeah, we, we handle um, the maintenance of all the desktops, laptops, uh, some of the phone stuff, the, the networking. Uh, to some extent, we had have a fabulous network engineering uh, group that's that's centralized but we we do the smaller pieces here in-house how has the pandemic changed the way that you and your colleagues are working 
it has really accentuated the caretaker part of my job. Um, I'm always needing to be looking for ways to protect my team, uh, helping them stay safe, looking for the safest way to handle our workflows, uh, changing things around that, you know, make, you're making sure everyone is masked and have we have gloves in stock and hand sanitizer. And if people come into the department with uh, iPads or phones that, that they stop at the door and, and sanitize that before they bring it into our area just so that that we can stay safe. And for my team, there are so many questions around HR and paperwork and rules and timekeeping and how things get get booked, staying ahead of that for my team as well. And they're stressed from this too. They're out in the COVID areas and they're worried about their families as well. So I try and be a little extra kind. We try and partner with other area leaders to anticipate and meet their needs in advance. Uh, sometimes they just need to talk and IT is a safe place for them to come vent. How does the work that you all do fit into the big picture of running a hospital? Uh, our work is critical, but you know, it should be largely unseen. When someone turns on the faucet, they shouldn't have to think about the pipe. They should just get water. And we are the pipe. We are a piece of the puzzle that delivers platforms that caregivers need but they're the real miracle out there face-to-face -face with the people in need in the community every day in our hospital. If you've seen the Washington Post video, I think most of us have, you see what we're up against here at St. Mary's. And we're just, uh, as the IT department, we're just here to ease their way, both the patients and the pure caregivers. We do have a link to the video that you mentioned on our website, Hear Me Now podcast. Org. Dave, thanks for the work that you're doing, and please pass our thanks on to your staff there in Apple Valley. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they're phenomenal people, and um, they care about the community, and they'll appreciate hearing your thanks. Dave Baker is the Information Services and User Support Supervisor at the Providence St. Mary Medical Center in Apple Valley, California. Dave, thanks. Thank you. In the United States, the vast majority of hospice care is provided at home, and home access has been riskier for caregivers since the pandemic. Lisa Macias is a home health aide with Memorial Hospice in Santa Rosa, California, and she joins me now. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? Hello. I'm fine. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your work under normal circumstances. What is, what's your interaction like with patients? Well, it was great. You would go into, I would go into a patient's home and greet them either, you know, with a hug or a tap or a, definitely a smile. They could see, you know, my smile, hmm. um, offer, you know, handshake or a hug to the family member that's taking care of the, of their loved one. Yeah. It, different. It was really different. So all of that is sort of out the window now. You can't do any of that. Yes, all of it is out the window because you no longer can see the smile and um, definitely there's no hugging or maybe a, just a fist bump to the patient's loved one. Really different, yes. And you're in, in full PPE when you go into the home? Yes, we have, um, depending on what level of patient, but yes, with the COVID patient, definitely full PPE. The masks and the N95, the shield and the... Um, 
isolation gown and gloves. So when the pandemic began, you must have become concerned about yourself. And I know that you're focused on your patients, but you you still must have been concerned about your own health and your own safety. Yes. I mean, I of course, but also it took me, I don't know, maybe a couple of months into the whole COVID that I just realized that our patients need help, COVID or no COVID, and I was going to do the best I could. That's just, I mean, it did take me a while. I'm not lying. It did take me a while to like get the grip of like, okay, you know, well, these patients didn't ask for this sickness or whatever it is that, you know, they still need our, our help, our care. Absolutely. And are the, the other team members from hospice doing the same sort of thing or are some of them able to do their work by, by phone or by Zoom? Um, not as often as they would like. Um, a lot of it is through Zoom or mostly email. Um, some of the nurses do like um, the telehealth Zoom call, you know, chat or something with the patient, but very v- few visits. So you really do become the face of the hospice in that home. Correct. Yes. How are you doing? How are you handling it? Well, I mean, I'm I'm doing well, thank you. I mean, I have a lot of support. I I just do the best and and take care of myself. You know, wearing all the PPE that I'm supposed to and doing all the care that I'm supposed to do for myself. You know, so I can be there for for my patients. It's hard, but I do a lot of self talking for sure. Well, I just want to say. I know that you're making a huge impact on the lives of those families, and I'm sure your visits mean the world to them. I'm also sure that they tell you that. Yes. I want you to know the rest of us notice it too and think the work you're doing is quite amazing. Thank you. Please take care of yourself, okay? Yes, thank you. Lisa Macias is a home health aide with Memorial Hospice in Santa Rosa, California. Lisa, thank you. Thank you. Randy Amato is a maintenance engineer at Providence Holy Family Hospital in Spokane, Washington, and he joins me now. Hey, Randy, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Doing well tonight. Thank you. Good. I understand you just got home from a 12-hour shift. Is that normal for you all? Yes, it is. We have a rotating schedule that we work three twelves and a four, and that rotates each week. So if I didn't know that there was a global pandemic underway and I walked into Holy Family Hospital, would would I be able to tell? Would I know it by just looking around? I believe you would. Um, as most institutions, we have a check-in process where uh, people's temperatures are taken, uh, masking, of course. Uh, so I think that's kind of a giveaway. I'm guessing that there aren't a lot of visitors there. That's correct. Uh, they've kept it to a minimum throughout this. So your training, uh, as I understand it, is in a, you're an electrician by training. Is that right? Correct. Tell me about your work these days. When the pandemic first hit, uh, obviously we were much more busy 
trying to figure things out as especially as far as air changes and making rooms negative for COVID patients. Um, so our workload increased considerably for probably the first month or so of the pandemic. Walk us through a little bit of the detail there. What did you all have to do to control the airflow? Well, we have what are called negative air rooms. And basically that's the air is filtered out of the room uh, separately. So there's a separate exhaust for each room. And in our facility, we didn't have uh, very many of those rooms. And when the pandemic hit, uh, we were asked to turn our complete ICU unit into a negative air rooms. So fortunately, we have an uh, HVAC guy on staff and between him and the rest of our staff, we were able to accomplish that on a so-called temporary basis, which is still in effect, obviously. And when that worked, then we were also asked to convert a handful of rooms on a few other floors in that same um, type of scenario. That's fascinating. Are you venting to the outdoors? Correct. So we have our incoming air through our air handlers, and then we added a separate exhaust system through the ceiling, and then it runs through what we call air scrubbers, which have HEPA filters in them. So everything is filtered before it's put back outside. That's really remarkable. People are really grateful for the work that you all are doing. Well, we appreciate that, and, and we've seen that from our staff at our facility. Uh, the nurses, they, they're the ones that are, you know, on the front lines every day. And for the pressures that they have had to be um, involved in and go through, they've made our, haven't, they've actually done a really good job uh, making our job as easy as possible. So that's kind of the fun part is to, if we get a call, it's a pleasure to go and, and do what we can for the rest of the staff in the hospital. Very well said. Randy Amato is a maintenance engineer at Providence Holy Family Hospital in Spokane, Washington. Randy, thanks a lot for talking to me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Wayne Pierce provides the crucial service of patient transportation at the Providence Portland Medical Center, and he joins me now. Hi, Wayne. How are you doing? I am just great, Sean. How about you? I'm well, thanks. One aspect of your work that I really admire is that you might have one encounter with a patient. It might last 15 minutes or 30 minutes. Yes. But for those 15 or 30 minutes, you and that patient are on a journey together and you're accompanying one another. Tell me how you build rapport with people because you have to do it quickly. Yes, you do. And it is important to build rapport uh, with the patients. Um, oftentimes, a patient is there and they have a procedure that they have to do, or they have to be scanned in digital imaging. They have something, they're there for a reason or specific reasons. And oftentimes they can feel uh, a, a bit high-strung emotionally, they might feel compromised. And it's really important to set a, a calm and uh, friendly atmosphere. And I found that humor in 90% of uh, the cases works very well. 
Has has that changed at all during the pandemic, that interaction with patients? Um, the only thing that's changed it, uh, Sean, is that we're physically wearing a mask. I, I've got a, uh, a mask on. I have a face shield. If I go in and help the nurse, which I sometimes do, then I have a yellow paper gown that I have to put on. So the prep work has taken longer. So the wait times take longer. Um, and the same thing when you take the... Uh, the patient down to x-ray or wherever they're going then the technicians and nurses in that department they have to do the same thing you mentioned your colleagues the you know the nursing staff and the tech staff have you all been looking out for one another have you noticed that during the pandemic very much um it's been what almost a year since uh this is uh since covid's been around we have all this material available to us and we'd have to remind each other sometimes that oh you, you forgot to get a, a mask an n95 mask has a, a high filtration rate and we all have one of those and i have done that i have um come back to where our uh, storage and office area is i'll, I'll get a job and I, I will sometimes walk out the door without my face shield on uh, and somebody will say, oh, you, you forgot your face shield. I thought, oh, hell, i got to go back and get my face shield. But you have to have that. Mm -hmm. So um, we're very much looking out for each other. And we are also trading ideas about um, doing things perhaps a little bit more efficiently if we can um, with uh, the added uh, precautions that we're taking uh, due to COVID. What about at the emotional level? Are, are people checking in on how people are coping? Yes, um, not only with fellow staff members, but certainly with the patients. Uh, some of them, when a year ago, when there were so many unknowns to all of this, and we all had a lot of questions because it was all brand new. And um, so there is, there is a heightened state of emotion, uh, and, some, and that can also morph into fatigue when um, oh, sometimes we've had two and three COVID patients in one day. That's a lot to deal with. It's a shared emotional circumstance that um, is being shared by us, the, the staff workers at the hospital, and also the, uh, the family and obviously the patient. Are you hopeful? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yes, I am hopeful. Um, I'm actually hope, more hopeful now than I was a few months ago, frankly. Um, the, the metric, the only metric I really have, and I guess that any of us have, is how many patients, are, how many COVID patients do we have this week? And um, we've had, oh gosh, we've had close to, I think 90, right after the first of the year, first week in uh, January, we've been able to whittle that down to a fraction of that, more like 25 or 30. But there's also, Sean, a lot of fluctuation. Um, it can be down one week and it will go up literally the next. So there is a constant tug of, are we doing things correctly? Are we doing enough? Um, that's that's within, within ourselves and our philosophy because we're there to help this patient out. So. I have to be at least a little bit optimistic. I, I temper it certainly with the reality of what's going on because the, the numbers don't lie ultimately. If we have 50 cases, we have 50 cases. But as long as we can 
trend that number down and keep it down, then I think that we're doing a good job. Yeah, there, there's a large emotional toll, and it can be physically demanding as well. Well, listen, take care of yourself. I will do that. I will do that, and, and you do as well. Um, there are some just the, the basic and baseline ideas of social distancing and wearing a mask. Um, uh, I am a fan of Dr. Fauci. I think he's done a hell of a good job and uh, in keeping the country informed, even without even with all the unknowns that we have. So um, I listen to him and take some hope with that. I look at the numbers we have at Providence and um, I'm hopeful whether the numbers are up or down because because you have to be. You really do. You have to be because we're there. We are there, Sean, to help these people out, and we can do it, and we are doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, thank you for the work that you do every day, and, and thank you for easing people's way at a time of stress and worry and, and for being so generous with yourself. Well, you're, you're entirely welcome, and, and certainly the people that we serve are entirely welcome. That's one reason why we're there, and, and I, I think we're doing a good job. Wayne Pierce provides patient transportation at the Providence Portland Medical Center. Wayne, thank you. Uh, you are very welcome, Sean, and thank you very much. I have one last thought today. I think it would be a mistake to look at a large enterprise, there's no doubt about it, Providence is a huge enterprise, but it would be a mistake to think that a mission statement is something written by marketers and signed off on by suits. Mission percolates up from the floor, the floors of hospitals and hospices, from skilled care facilities and libraries, from IT departments and kitchens, and that hallway where they park the wheelchairs. Mission is lived by the people who are caregivers. And this pandemic makes it clear, we're all caregivers. Our thanks to all our guests today and to the healthcare workers across the country who've risked their own lives easing the way of others during this pandemic. Thank you all. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on the web at humancaring.org. Our stories are edited by Allison Jakes and Mike Addis and produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. The executive producer is Mike Drummond. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. We have research help from Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Amanda Schwartz, and Heather Martin. Subscribe where you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well. 